Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, as I say in the interview, someone who I think has one of the coolest vibes in music, Bob Bruno of the band Best Coast, of the Four Carnation, and of the Uphill Gardeners, and more. We'll get to all that in a second, my good buddy. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can also find me on various forms of social media, at Damien. Over on Facebook.com, there's a Facebook.com slash Punk page that's run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. You can send him a message. He'll get the message to me. We also post up on that Facebook page all the stuff that gets sent into the show, various, like, you know, flyers and, and accoutrements and whatnot. Uh, if you don't use Facebook, like myself, you can find all that stuff over there at turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com. If you would like to support this show, the best way to do that, if you use iTunes, that is, is by subscribing to this show, rating a review, rating a review, writing a review, or rating this podcast. If you don't use iTunes, the best way to support this show is just by telling all your friends. I also play in a band, though, called Fucked Up. And if you want to see Fucked Up play some shows on the west coast of... Canada and the United States, you can do that by heading over to fuckedup.cc. We've got a tour booked. It's going to be uh, going to be interesting. It's on the Green Coast, though, the Emerald Coast. That's what I like to call it now. So, uh, But please come out and see it. We're going to be doing Hidden World, our first album, start to finish. Whoosh! It's a lot when you're doing a whole record, you know? Like, when you're jumping around from time periods and stuff like that, you know, you can kind of, you know, you don't know where you're going to go. But when you're doing a whole record, it's all laid out right in front of you. It's a long record. No, I'm just kidding. It's a fun show. Come and see it. <laughs> um, and I think that is about it. I'm working on a lot of cool stuff, but um, it, I'm, I'm afraid I can't really talk about it yet. Uh, but when I can, you will be the first to know. You, I promise you all, you'll be the first to know. Um, but yeah, we're going to be working on some cool stuff. In the meantime, uh, yeah, just keep checking out this podcast. Speaking of checking out this podcast, this week is a great week to check out because this week features Bob Bruno from the band Best Coast. Bob, Bob is someone that I've known for, God, like a while now, like a, quite a few years now, and someone that I always thought was like super awesome, super cool on stage. I never really had a, a chance to, to, you know, have an extended conversation until I found out that he was in wrestling. And that just opened my punishment door. And I just began punishing him. And then I ultimately found out that he was into punk rock. And, uh, you know, knew he had to come on the show. But unlike many other guests that have come on the show, he actually made his Turned Out of Punk debut on Clobberin' Tom. Tom, Brian, and my's uh, wrestling podcast that we uh, do occasionally these days. But he was a guest on there. And I invited him back to come back to Turned Out of Punk. And then we made it happen. And it's awesome. It's a really fun conversation with someone who has one of the most diverse tastes in music that I've ever met. And I know a lot of people out there are like, well, I've got pretty diverse tastes. I admit that I don't have very diverse tastes. I like uh, a wide range of very narrow pools of music, but you know, I, it's not like a, a broad spectrum. Whereas Bob likes a lot of different stuff. He brings up this is like one of those interviews where you're going to hear uh, bats, the Connecticut bats brought up, not the New Zealand bats, but the Connecticut bats, which are also awesome, and the Spice Girls, and Man is a Bastard, and Pissed Happy Children, all in one conversation. So this is something that's going to be, uh, 
a good one for you fans of uh, all types of music. Well, as you can hear in the background, um, my child is crying downstairs, so I think Laura needs a little bit of uh, help cleaning up from breakfast with the kids. So I'm going to go down there, help that out, and why don't you check out my conversation with the great Bob Bruno on Turned Out of Punk. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show, buddy. No problem. Now, you are a rare beast for us here at Turn Out of Punk headquarters. When I say us, I mean, I mean me, because <laughs> uh, you did the wrestling podcast first. Yeah. So, you know, that's how we, we bridged, uh, bridged you into the universe. And now we've, that we've got you trapped in our tentacles, we're never letting go. And, uh, which is awesome. Cause like, to me, you've always had one of the coolest vibes in music and then finding out that you were into <laughs> wrestling, I, I'm like, we gotta be friends. <laughs> Thanks man. <laughs> but this no, is about my obsession with you. It's about, uh, <laughs> me f- finding out about my obsession with punk through you, which is, Bob, do you remember the first time you ever heard punk or came across the genre? Um, yeah, I remember I was probably in like, I want to say fourth grade or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, these kids at my school, uh, one of them was talking about black flag <laughs> and yep. I was like, Oh, what's that? And, uh, he, he's like, Oh, it's punk band. And like, I saw the logo somewhere. And, uh, around that time too, there was kind of like, or a little before that even maybe, uh, there was a thing like on the news about crazy punk shows and they would show like, you know, riots and fighting and stuff. Um, and it was funny because like the band they would talk about and that other people would talk about is the (laughs) B-52s, which (laughs) was so hilarious, like in hindsight, that. But there are a band uh, that comes that up was... a lot on the show is like people's like intro to kind of punk because they were that, I guess, like bridge band for a lot of people. Yeah, it was like, you know, on the news, like uh, these punk shows with violence and stuff. <laughs> and um, so that was the first time I, I heard about punk and, and punk music. And uh, then uh, there was when I really started to get into it, there was a summer when I, I stayed in San Jose, California for a couple of weeks, uh, with a, a lady who used to babysit me when she lived in SoCal. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a tower records within walking distance. And, uh, so every day I'd pretty much go there and they had the entire target video series. Oh, awesome. And, so I would watch all those like target video compilations and they had one that was just black flag and, uh, one that was tuxedo moon. And, uh, and then I also at that tower, um, I would get a couple records, um, like, uh, the everything went black. I would just try and buy any punk record where you got more than one record. <laughs> so like there are the mystic records, like value pack. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I got like a. So was it based mentors, on Sorry, go on. Sorry, mentors. You got the I mentors, got a mentors double record. Pack? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the seven inch. Yeah, uh, and a twelve inch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! At Tower Records yeah. too. What if? What if? Like, I guess it shows what cool kind of cool selection Tower Records did have of independence. Oh yeah, it, it was really good. 
so how are you picking these bands out? Because like you know, Tuxedo Moon obviously is is worlds apart from Black Flag sonically. Was it just based on aesthetic, or was it based on like just names that kind of stuck out to you? Or, um, well, after watching the Black Flag one and uh, one of the like uh, Target video party things uh, that had Black Flag on it, you know, they'd have like a song from each different band, and uh, so. The Tuxedo Moon stuff was interesting, mm-hmm. and uh, I just – I think I ran it at some point. I went through all of them mm-hmm. and just watched them all. So, <laughs> you know, you'd see, like, these bands that weren't as well-known, like uh, FOD, like Flag of Democracy. I think that's what it's for. Yep, nope. They're a band and, that surprisingly comes up the past two weeks a lot on this show. <laughs> but, yeah, they are a very obscure <laughs> band otherwise. <laughs> yeah, they have one track on uh, one of those flip side comps that I, I still listen to today. And they come up on the best show a lot too. Like John Worcester will bring them up in his calls on the oh, best really? show. <laughs> yeah, those are, Whoa. I think those are the biggest claims to fame maybe for that. Band, but that's um, awesome. They, uh, yeah. But like, so I guess it's like at this point, your, your engagement is obviously like going to these stores and, and picking up all this stuff. But like, were you aware of people around you that were involved? In, I, I guess your babysitter was your babysitter into it at all or no, or, no, um, she had a brother that I'd hang out with and he was like sort of into it, but not, you, you know, he didn't really, he had like a casual knowledge of stuff. It was basically me just finding about stuff on my own, like, um, you know, getting flip side or maximum rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Cause most of my friends growing up, we we're all more into metal. And punk, not so much. And, like, <laughs> we would find out about punk bands a lot from, like, whatever shirts Metallica would wear. <laughs> yeah. Like, Misfits and uh, SNFU. <laughs> Discharge, DDH. probably. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we would check out all those records. And, like, Anthrax, too. You know, they would always talk about, like, Crumb Suckers and stuff like that. Well, how did you get into metal prior to that? Like, how, what was your first kind of, like involvement with that music um how did i get into metal i think maybe i saw like <laughs> uh like a motley crew poster or something from like shout at the devil yeah era and i was like <laughs> oh this seems cool and also iron maiden like uh i thought eddie was the coolest thing ever so just seeing him on the record covers and stuff uh and then the music being so incredible. Um, that's, those are like the two, them and Dio were like the, the early metal bands that I was really into. And then when I heard Metallica, then it took it to another level. So yeah, you mentioned like your friends weren't that into this stuff. So you were the only one that was kind of finding like a, a little bit of a sonic connection with this punk stuff at the time. Yeah, I had a couple friends, but they didn't live as close to me. Like mm-hmm. I would see that more in the summertime and sometimes on weekends and they would turn me on to stuff like uh i remember one of the first things that really blew my mind was uh the dri first release the like what is it 22 songs or something uh i i still have my original copy (laughs) of the lp version and uh yeah it's incredible that's awesome. So, like, I guess, were you going to metal shows? Like, had you been to any metal shows or concerts by this point? 
I think I had to beg my mom to go see Anthrax open for Kiss. Oh, what a on show! Among the, Among the Living tour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the funny thing is, because we are such jerks, uh, we left right after Anthrax, like, because Kiss was like glam or whatever. And no makeup time. on so, yeah. at that point. Yeah, like, ah, oh, this is like soft. Like, <laughs> so we left after Anthrax. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah. So were there any kids around you playing music at this point? Like, had you started playing stuff? Uh, no, I didn't start. I started playing, like, uh, well, I got a drum set maybe when I was like, 13 or maybe even before then and i was terrible at it just like so awful (laughs) and so i kind of didn't really like i would do it for fun but didn't try and play with people till like later in school um but i had a friend named jimmy who turned me on to he was the guy who played me dri and he used to go to poobah records which is still here in pasadena and um they used to get all the imports and stuff so and he would buy a lot of records. So I would tape stuff off of him. And uh, so he was the first guy I knew that was in a band. And I went to a house party and saw his band. And would he had a practice space in the back of his house. And I would go just hang and watch them practice. And uh, that was really cool to actually see that people could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so- you know, play parties and stuff. What was the vibe of that band? Uh, they're awesome. I just listened to their seven inch. They have uh, a seven inch. They put out they put out one seven inch that they put out themselves. The band was called Unauthorized. Okay. And oh, uh, it, I think I have that fucking seven. It's like black black sleeve with unauthorized and like white font. It's a little picture on the cover. Yeah, of seven? like a homeless guy. Yeah. A card thing. Yeah. Oh, um, crazy. So that was they're the first punk band I saw, and um. Yeah, and they're a straight edge band. I wasn't straight edge, but I um I felt like in tune with a lot of what straight edge was saying. Mm-hmm. Even though I, I never put an X on my hand or anything. Uh a lot of the stuff I'd read in like interviews with Youth of Today and stuff, uh I really it really resonated with me. Yeah. So I would kind of follow that lifestyle just without claiming it did you like at at this point like once you kind of see unauthorized like you i guess you find out there is a bit of a local scene happening were there any other bands locally um there were bands i would hear about again through jimmy um that they i still wasn't really allowed to go to shows yeah um but uh you know he was really into like um Instead and yeah. in fact and visual discrimination, uh, PHC, um, MDC stuff like that. Yeah, and then also the the start of Revelation stuff like Youth of Today and then Chain of Strength and Bold and all that stuff. That's awesome. So, like, what at which point did you kind of like like start playing like with 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 these guys that you start actually playing music, or is it later still? Uh, it was a, still a bit later. Um, maybe in like 10th or 11th grade, uh, 
some friends from school, we would just jam on, you know, Metallica covers or Guns N' Roses, stuff like that. As one or, does. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like Danzig, Danzig, Misfits, Faith No More. We were, that was mostly the stuff we would play. And, uh, eventually, uh, being so frustrated with drumming, I started playing bass and that was like a lot easier and, you know, learning misfit songs and, and pretty much the only songs to this day still that I can kind of play are like of other people's. I can, you know, <laughs> stuff I don't write is like misfit songs and some Black Sabbath songs. Uh, <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. Well, that's all you need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That that sets you up pretty good. So, I what age did you were you able to kind of like either start going to shows or or what, like getting out of the house and kind of like getting a chance to you know take part of the nighttime events, which I definitely can relate to that too. Not being allowed to go to those. Um, I think when I was like probably whenever it was the first Danzig record came out around that Whoa. time, like. uh I think maybe the second show I got to go to after that Anthrax one. And again, I had to beg my mom. And luckily I had a cool stepdad that she started dating around then. And he got her to loosen up a lot. So uh, there was a show at the podium. Uh, first Danzig show in L.A. before the record was out. Opening for Slayer when South of Heaven had just come out. And I got to go to that. And... uh it was crazy because a riot broke out. It was oversold. Somebody jumped through glass door because they had a ticket and wasn't oh allowed God. to come in. And so all that stuff happened and me and my friends didn't really know, but about that, but this, this floor on that Slayer show was insane. It was just like probably like four pits and just like, I remember there's like piss on the floor and shit. So we were like, let's just leave right now. And uh, as we're walking out, we turn and look, and it's a full-life riot cops just marching at us. And we're like, what the fuck? And uh, we totally jaywalked across Sunset against traffic to get away from them. My friend got hit in the arm, and we're like, what the fuck is going on? And then we ran into an Arby's. And as soon as we get in there, they start locking the door. We're like, what's going on? He's like, oh, there's a riot at the Palladium and they're shutting everything down. We're like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's so, a terrifying first kind of, or yeah. second show experience. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, like, uh, there's a, there's a place in Reseda called the Country Club. And that yep. was mostly, oh, yeah. I would go to shows there. So Danzig played there and, um, saw Guar there. Wait, Dan, how many people were at the country club? How big was that venue? It was tiny, isn't it? It was, you could fit maybe a couple hundred in there. Danzig played there on that tour. On his, or, yeah, on his, that was when the record came out. That was the show. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was really great. Yeah, because I guess I didn't see him. Like, I guess by the time I saw him, it was like Mother 90, whatever the remix year. Oh, made. yeah. So it was like he was already like a rock god, but like, yeah, I guess there is that build up to becoming a rock god where he would have been playing the country club. Yeah. It's such a weird time to like, you know, you brought up like, you know, Infest and all these bands that were kind of happening around there. It's like so much cool 
stuff that would lay the, the groundwork for extreme music for the next sort of 25 years is all bubbling up in that area around that time. Like, you know, Slayer up north a little more, but like, you know, Infest and all this kind of stuff happening down there and all the pop punk stuff too happening, like no effects and Pennywise kind of blowing up yeah. around there. And then Bad Religion. Yeah. And then Did you ever like see the them? I never saw them um, of that kind of era stuff. I got to see the Dickies uh, on the night that the LA riots happened. Oh my God. Uh, they played at the Roxy. <laughs> And me and my friend were like pulling it over because it was still kind of the a lot of protests and stuff downtown. Yeah. And we were just like, fuck it, let's just go. And we as we were driving over there, we drove by like people about to start like trying to shut down Sunset Strip. But we made it past them and got to see the Dickies play on the L.A. riot night. Mike. Well, I also, you hear stories about Dickie shows, like when Fat Mike was on the show, he talked about his friend being stabbed at a Dickie show. Was it a Whoa. crazy pit inside there or no? By that point? No, it was, I think the riot, the riot yeah. kept, uh, kept a lot of people away. <laughs> yeah. And also it was, it was a weird bill. Like they were, um, the opener was this band called Yesterday's Tear that oh. I was obsessed with. They were kind of like a metal like industrial kind of band okay uh they later changed their name to drown and like open for white zombie and stuff uh but it was them and the dickies and i was like i love both these bands even though it's like <laughs> the weirdest lineup uh because yesterday's tear was more like a sunset strip kind of band whereas the yeah. dickies be like you know al's bars someplace like that yeah I guess, like, by this point, are there, uh, like, you know, you're going to all sorts of different types of shows. Like, was there other local bands that you're kind of, like, getting into at this point? Um, just, like, really not good funk metal kind of bands <laughs> and stuff. Did you ever see LAPD? Um, I didn't get to see LAPD. Um, I got to see Electric Love Hogs a bunch, which was John from Goldfinger and oh. Kelly from Goldfinger. That was their funk metal band. So um, that's like so that so that band joins with Zero Tolerance drummer and becomes Goldfinger. Uh, yeah. What an amazing! I don't know if Kelly was was the bass player originally, but he did play in that band for a long time. But yeah, that was John's band. Wow. Um, so like, were they uh were they like a popular band at that point? Did they record? Electric Glovehogs? Yeah, they yeah. uh they were somewhat popular and they did I know they definitely did one major label record uh that Tommy Lee produced oh, wow. and uh, I went to the regular elite show and Tommy Lee got up <laughs> and played with them which was awesome that is uh, awesome but yeah it's that band like the drummer from Electric Love Hog ended up in Orgy and then the guitar player ended up in like Velvet Revolver, I think. So it's crazy that that one band yeah. spawned a lot of stuff. That's like a proto suit. If they got back together, that's like a super group. <laughs> yeah, it would be a super group. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know who's super, but it's someone's super. Like, someone's. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I mean, you and me would be excited to see them again, but like, apart yeah, from us. Yeah, I would be excited. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see like any of those like uh, Slap a Ham bands? Um, I don't think so. Around that time, like, that's when I started getting 
away from uh punk a little bit and getting more into like free jazz mm-hmm. and a lot of avant-garde music um and noise Japanese the first wave of Japanese noise was happening uh how are you hearing about that stuff um that stuff there was a guy uh Jack Zinder who used to put on shows and um he wrote for LA Weekly and he uh back when LA Weekly was good um and he wrote an article about some of those bands and then Shortly after that, uh, there was a tour of like three Japanese noise bands. It was like, uh, Solmania, Tanarash, and Masana. And, um, Seed Masana was like, that was it. I was like, this is the hardest thing. Um, and one of the best, still one of the best live shows I've ever seen. Like, that amount of energy and just like not giving a fuck for like in a set that's less than 10 minutes. Yeah. Was like the, the most extreme thing had like, did that tour do America? Cause that must've been like the, the, like a, how a lot of people kind of found it like the Japanese noise coming out tour, I guess, or shows. Yeah. I mean, I know they did like here in SF. I don't know how much, if they did any middle America stuff. Um, but um, it's then, possible. Yeah, because I know Dwid from Integrity, like around that time, they he, like starts writing about like that sort of stuff in Blood Book fanzine. Like maybe it's just that's, you know, as you say, like that's the first wave of that stuff really getting exposed to American audiences. What yeah. Was, what was an audience like for that kind of show? Just nerds, like straight up, just, just like weird guys like myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Not – no women. Yeah. That, that's what blows my mind now about you go to a noise show and it's not just a bunch of dudes wearing glasses anymore. It's yeah. awesome. It's like, um, but yeah, back then just dudes with glasses pretty much. Well, and you, you like, you know, you think about some of those artists back then it's like, yeah, I could think that would be fairly, uh, aggressive towards women trying to get into the scene. Like, you know, hearing Peter Soto's <laughs> lyrics. And stuff in the <laughs> yeah. house being like, yeah, maybe, maybe noise music isn't my thing. <laughs> totally. Uh, but like, uh, stuff like the boredom zone would yeah. be, you know, yeah. kind of a more mixed crowd and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess like Yoshimi, I becomes kind of like an alternative icon for a while there. Like, you know, through free. Oh kitten yeah, definitely. And- yeah. With free kitten. Yeah. Especially. I, like, so you're into like a bunch of different stuff. Like what kind of stuff are you playing at this point? Musically, um, around that time, I was probably just making music in my bedroom, like that was weird, like just with drum machines and like kind of just weird electronic music mm-hmm. with like noise elements and and weird guitar stuff. Um, and then in '95, I, um, me and two other guys started this band called the Peel gardeners and uh that was like the first real band i was in that that played a lot of shows and put out records and stuff was that the first time you recorded something too or had you been had you recorded demos in other projects um i would record stuff on a four track of just my own stuff or like uh 
this like jokey kind of metal band that me and my friend had. Um, that was called Owl and Friend. Um, okay. And we would put out tapes of like editions of 10 or whatever. Uh, for Dude, our friends. That's, now. that's on my want list now. That's <laughs> on my want list, Bob. I got to get some of those tapes now. <laughs> <laughs> they were really just, that whole band was just to annoy our friends because of how seriously we kind of took it. And, uh, <laughs> like, oh yeah, we're, we're going to make tapes and, and do all, and always, we used to make fake flyers for shows and put them up at the community coffee we went to. <laughs> Um, just to annoy people. And we write, we would write dumb stuff like, you know, free guitar giveaway at this show. And, but it'd have no address or anything. It would just be, my friend would draw, like, uh, really cool flyers and stuff and we'd hang them up. There's no show happening. So, yeah, like, I guess what, what scene did you guys kind of fit into? Cause like, I know that label put out that, that dog split, right? They did like a, that dog record win. Yeah. Win records. Um, the scene around LA that time was really cool because it was like a mix of, for lack of a better term, like indie rock stuff mm-hmm. and kind of noisier, more experimental stuff. Like, um, yeah, the studio Poop Alley that, uh, that dog recorded early stuff at and, um, and that Uphill Gardeners, um, recorded at and the label win records was kind of like that was almost like a scene into itself but because of the roster on that label was so diverse it just there was a lot of intermingling of of styles that weren't related but because of the label they it became a kind of a scene and this was like jabberjaw was was happening still um and there were a couple other spots in LA. And then when those spots closed was the genesis of the smell opening. Um, because all those places, a lot of the all ages, uh, show places closed within a couple months of each other. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny. Cause like, you know, I've had a, like a couple of different people on who lived in LA in that era. And they've all been kind of part of that whole big pop punk, like epifat pop punk. When I say pop punk explosion, what was uh-huh. it like kind of like existing outside of that at that time? Was it like like an oppressively dominating scene to have to deal with? Like was it like the jock rock of that era? Like I've always been fascinated how it was received by people like looking at it who are also doing punk music. Um, yeah, Especially I mean to me that <laughs> it, I feel like that stuff, a lot of it, at least because I wasn't super into it. Mm-hmm. It, we just kind of equated it to like OC music, yeah, because uh, that's where you know those kind of shows were mostly happening. Um, so it didn't really affect anything going up uh, and around Los Angeles. Um, I would just go to the OC because I was really into some of the later Revelation bands, like Farside and Sensefield. I was obsessed with both those bands, so pretty much any time they played that I could go see them. I would go see them and into another mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, those later revelation bands. So how'd you get into that stuff? Like what, what was your, like, I guess your friend was into the rev stuff before you were able to kind of, when you're too young to kind of go to these shows, but like, how'd you first become aware of like this whole like kind of post rev scene that's or rev scene, but like uh, post hardcore one, I guess. 
just um you know start today was such a good record mm-hmm. but um especially because it was you know kind of melodic even though the music is is heavy and so i was always just looking for something that would be similar to that and i would just pretty much buy everything that revelation put out for a while like they had a really good you know run of stuff so mm-hmm. i'd be like and this is like mostly when I bought cassettes too. So it was like, a, you know, cheap to, to try stuff out. And also there's Aaron's records where you could find a lot of stuff used. Um, but, um, Had rip- yeah. So sorry, go on. Oh, just, um, I remember when the first quicksand EP came out, uh, that really, I think that's what got me deeper into just buying everything from revelation. Cause that was also so incredible to me that that first, uh, well, the three song tape, seven inch, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, I guess, like it's it's funny because when did Rev move out to California? Was it around then too, right? Uh, yeah, they were already out here when when I started listening to that stuff and going to those shows. Um, it seemed like they'd been out here a, a couple years already. Yeah, so it's like the uh, it's almost like when they move out to California. That's when. That's when things start getting a little, uh, a little weirder on the label. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love those records. Yeah. And so like, I guess what were those shows? Like, cause you're going to all different types of shows. Like I'm, I love, like, that's what it, like, I love when you meet people that it, like never like picked a stream, like just like loved it all. Like what, out of, out of all those shows vibe wise, what were like, what was the revelation stuff like at that point? Like, was it like crazy? Um, was it a lot of people going to see it or it was, they would play, they would do shows a lot at this place called Coos Cafe, which was like a house essentially, like, um, on a, like Main Street or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't a huge place. Um, but there was kind of like a regular scene of like, especially when Farside played, like, you know, it'd usually be with like Game Face or Sensefield sometimes. And so you'd see a lot of the same people, um, the funniest is multiple times I remember uh Steve Aoki like yeah. would sing with Farside on what song was it Hero <laughs> and he, back then he was just like peroxide like shaggy hair backwards cap like wearing OP clothes or whatever <laughs> and it's funny like remembering knowing him from that and then seeing what he is now is just so crazy to me, dude. Walter like, yeah. Walter Schreifel's on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and and revealed the fact that Steve Aoki's the bootlegger of Walter sings the hits. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And they're all friends That's now, insane. so it's not like a yeah. You know, he wasn't like calling him out for it, but but still, it's like yeah, like it's funny, like Steve Aoki. If there's ever been someone that has had two completely different lives in the public eye, it's been his little i guess small p public eye that was the punk era and then now he's like you know obviously a superstar <laughs> like beyond yeah <laughs> beyond any uh anyone's wildest dreams so what kind, i guess you guys are playing in uh the band at the time like is it you know you're playing these shows like how did that band kind of meet its end like what was the uh the end of the uphill gardeners uh that band ended uh we did we only did one tour and that was opening for the Geraldine Fibbers. Oh, and wow. And that was the first. 
Yeah, I was I was stoked because they're yeah. you know probably my favorite band or one of my favorite bands at the time, and um, I was already friends with Nels before he joined that band. Um, so it was cool going on tour with them, um, which was I don't know, it was maybe a couple weeks, but I we started in Bowling Green, so we drove. I bought a van to do that tour, a minivan. <laughs> And uh, we drove to Bowling Green, Ohio, and played um, – or not Bowling Green. We played at Oberlin, sorry. Oh, okay. At the college. Oberlin College, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so when we got back, um, the guitar player, Jarrett, he was just kind of more interested in doing, I guess, more like noise or sound kind of stuff and less about like kind of songs like somewhat rooted in like whatever for like rock you know things with a beat and yeah. uh, <laughs> conventional songwriting i guess yeah. yeah 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 and so he just didn't want to do the band anymore and it wasn't the kind of that band was so much equally like our personalities and influences that it wasn't like, Oh, well we can replace them and just keep going. So, um, that was it. And so like you guys did an LP on that kill shaman record label, right? Uh, well that came out way later. later Okay. That was everything that didn't make it on the first record or other things we had recorded. So the first record came out in 97 on win records which, um, yeah, did stuff with like, oh, and a that lot was of bands, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. The, okay. the Kill Sh- Shaman one was way later. Okay, that explains it. I was always like, how do they survive for like ten years as a band? But then that, that no, means... no, we we were around for three years. Okay, so what happens kind of after uh, you know uh, that band Uphill Gardeners are done? Where'd you gonna go from that? Um. I did a lot of things mostly because I was like, uh, there was kind of like, I feel like now for people that are into like pop music or like just not into their scene music, the back then the lines were like more rigid mm-hmm. and, you know, for someone who loved, you know, Japanese noise and the Spice Girls, I just felt kind of, you know, super out of place or whatever. So I was like, I'm just going to do whatever. Like, I do not give a fuck. So um, there was this band out here called Seven Soft that was kind of like, um, I guess the closest thing is like, like a Veruca Salt kind of sounding band. Mm -hmm. Um, And I joined that band and and played bass um, and did that for a little bit. And then... This band, Polar Goldie Cats, that I'd been obsessed with and became friends with, and Uphill Gardeners would play shows with them a lot. Uh, their guitar player left, and they asked me to join that. Um, and then the other thing that happened was I met Brian McMahon from Slint, and uh, eventually we we became friends. And then eventually he asked me if I wanted to play in Four Carnation. Yeah, I thought that's why I, I thought you were in that band too. Yeah, yeah. But so you're not on the Matador record though, right? You're on the one. Like, no, I'm on the Touch and Go one. Okay. Well, your Touch final. and Go catalog number. 
<laughs> yeah. Look at that. I, I, I collect catalog uh, numbers on different labels, and Touch and Go is is a rare one that I slipped through my fingers, unfortunately. I'll never get it. <laughs> so. so that must have been like a pretty amazing experience. Were you like a Slint fan before you met him? And no. Stuff too, or? No, when I met oh, really? him, it was a while. Like I had heard Spiderland, and I was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. I I wasn't <laughs> one of those people that was like, you know, obsessed with Slint. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, it was cool. Like me and Brian, we would just meet for lunch and talk about music and stuff. Um, and we had a jam. It was Brian, me and Mario from off. Yeah. Um, and click attack. We jammed down in, yeah. From click attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and what was the other band? 411? He was in that. Right? He was in 411, and he was also in the Battalion of Saints lineup, the later one. Um, and he That's was right. in, oh, what was his, well, obviously Rocket, but he was in, oh, yeah. he was like in another like, big seven inch band. I can't remember like which Metro one. Like Metro Shifter, like one of those bands. Yeah, something like that. That must be. And then, of course, Earthless too, but, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to remember his other seven inch only band. <laughs> <laughs> What was that? Um, so was, yeah, that the, was that for Carnation for the Carnation too, or is that a different band? Uh, that was the first time I played music with Brian. Okay, and that that's what led to him asking me to to play in TFC. Um, and what was the vibe of that project? You guys record or just do that one practice? We just did the one practice. <laughs> I remember it was really weird because like, uh, me and Brian drove down together to San Diego. And uh, we had the practice or jam, whatever it was. Yeah, jam. Um, and, and he didn't really say anything about it. And he didn't really say much on the the ride back up. Uh, we just listened to, like, Blonde Redhead. And then, uh, so I was just like, oh, uh, I guess I fucked that up or whatever. <laughs> and then uh, he talked to me a couple days later because Brian obsessively records, like, everything pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like, especially at that time with regards to TFC stuff. Um, and he was like, man, you know, I listened back to the, our jam session and like, I guess I couldn't, he said he couldn't really hear a lot of what I was doing, but he could hear it on the recording. And then that's when he asked me if I was interested in contributing to Four Carnation. So what was like, that band must have been like, you guys probably toured, right? Like it was like a, like, was that your first band that actually like tour toured? Yeah, that was the first band that like went to UK. Yeah, uh, and and uh, we did one big US tour and then some like coastal stuff. Did you do like a European tour, or just the England thing? We did the first ATP. Oh, um, did Mogwai do that one, or did they do the second one? Were they curated? did what, what was that? Did Mogwai curate that one, or did they? Curate they curated that? that one. Yeah. Oh, that was such a, I lived in England at the time and I wanted to go to that so oh, fucking badly and just couldn't get it together. But yeah, that was, that was crazy doing that. Um, but yeah, we did, we did two other UK shows besides that. It's funny. Cause like, you know, your tastes in music, it's almost like the world caught up to you, you know, like the idea <laughs> of being into like everything now is like completely acceptable. But, uh, you know, like you mentioned, like there was a time where, that was just like not something that really happened. Yeah. Were there other people around you that were like, had the same sort of like range and taste that were like, you know, into sense field, but also into like 
Merzabow and also into like, you know, uh, the Spice Girls? Like, were there other people that were on this journey with you or did you kind of like, you're like the, uh, the lone there ship? There a couple, uh, like this guy, Jimmy Hay, um, who's drummed for a lot of bands and he was in a band that did a record on Sub Pop called uh, AM Radio or All Night Radio, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was in like, God, a ton of bands. Um, he, he also had like super diverse, uh, tastes. So, and me and him would hang out and just listen to stuff and go to shows like, um, whatever. Weird, like, uh, the first Chemical Brothers show out here, like <laughs> Meet Beat Manifesto and stuff like that. Um, but then we would also like talk about quicksand and we had like a band that never played a show. We would just practice at my mom's house all the time. That was kind of like, uh, I don't know. We were really into like, cars get crushed and like stuff like that. Cars so, get crushed. Um, yeah. Wow. You know what? Because, you just told me who's that. Band? Oh, <laughs> they're awesome. They're from SF or around there. And, um, they did a 10 inch record and then they did one record on gravity. Oh, um, but the 10 inch GP is like really crazy. Like kind of like a, the, a mix of like the singing style is more like what would become emo. And, but the music was more like easy, like math rock. Okay. Um, so kind of like, I guess we're at the drive-in would kind of do a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's the pretty much, but just yeah, way yeah, like, less slick and like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had, they had a, one guy would play, they would have two bass players for a lot of songs. Um, but yeah, they, they were really cool. And, uh, so yeah, we would play music kind of like that. And he was also into stuff like way more than me. Like when all the, the, the bands like Angel Hair mm-hmm. and, uh, Volume 11 and Mo Hinder and all that stuff was Jenny Piccolo. He yeah. was more into that scene. Um, so there's a lot of influence from that stuff too. Yeah. Would you go any of those like kind of ebullition type shows? Would you go any of that stuff? Uh, who did I see? Um, did you ever see John Henry West? No, I didn't see them. I'm trying to think of there's there was one band that used to play with Sensefield a lot that was really uh, like uh abolition emo band, but I can't remember their name. I can picture the album cover right now. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> it yeah. was probably printed on like a paper towel or a or a paper bag. Or <laughs> it was something. like an old man field or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, in black and white, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> But, um, I will. I will fix this in the intro. I'll figure this yeah, out, yeah. Bob. And I'll correct the way <laughs> yeah. for us. So I guess you're like at this point you're playing in all these different bands, and I, I, like once again, like Los Angeles has always been like a, a fascinating place because like I was kind of you know I knew about like the power violence stuff, and then obviously knew about the epithet stuff that was all happening there. But like it seems like that that scene that would kind of coalesce, you know, I guess a few years later, like maybe I guess you know, five years later, like around the smell and kind of that area, was that already starting to bubble up around the early two thousands? Um, well, I kind of like, I, I, I stayed in polar goldie cats and, and played in other bands, um, in the early two thousands, but for a while I kind of checked out and 
started going to this club called Largo okay. in LA because uh, um, I became obsessed with the second Fiona Apple record, mm-hmm. and which was produced by John Bryan. So um, I would go. He used to play every Friday, and. I got really immersed and obsessed with that. And, you know, I even told bands I was in, I was like, I don't play any Friday night shows like ever. <laughs> um, I think I made one. <laughs> yeah. I made one exception. Uh, so polar goalie cats could play with unwound. Um, <laughs> You're like, that's it. That's the only way. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, I think that was one of the few exceptions. Wow. Um, and then we toured with Unwound um, after that. And so I missed a couple shows. But I would try not to miss any. Um, what was it about his, what he was doing that, like, took you so? That you couldn't uh, miss just a show? The, just what an incredible musician mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. And, or is, rather. And, you know, he would do a show where it's just him and he – this is way back when nobody was really doing any kind of like live looping and he had already found a way. It was like basically him and this other guy, Joseph Arthur would do it um, where he had a looper for each instrument. So he, you would watch him build a song from the ground up instrument by instrument. And it was just the, the raddest thing to see um, so he's doing that every- happen. Sorry, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. So yeah, it was like a one man. It was a one man show with him playing every instrument. And he's doing this as a weekly residence. Yeah, okay. he used to play every Friday night, and he did it for gosh, I don't know. It was it was a long run. Mm-hmm. What were the audiences like going to see it? Was it like people like you that would come each week, or is it like just people taking yeah, there it were, once type thing? Or there was a core of regulars. I'd say maybe like around seven to 10 people that would be there most weeks. And then the rest were a lot of, uh, I don't know, um, power pop kind of <laughs> fans. Yeah. yeah. And then just there, there was a time where it became really hard to get in because John had worked with Fiona and with Beck. And also, so the people of that caliber were stopping by and would do songs with him. So it was, it was kind of a hot ticket where people, you know, and Elliot Smith also would would be there pretty regularly mm-hmm. and play with John. Um, so a lot of people wanted to see the show, and that place only held like I think 180 or something. Okay. And most of that seating was oh no, it was 108. I think it was like that um, was for tables for dinner because it was kind of like a weird supper club with a bar in the back. Um. So yeah, but it's the, so cool um, that you guys were all like, I, I think that idea of this, like, would you meet, would you be able to talk to him or are you just talking to each other at this point? Like, we would just talk to each other. No, I was like too scared. Um, and then, you know, eventually the owner Flanagan of Largo kind of took a liking to me because I would just be at a lot of their shows. And, you know, their main thing there was when the music starts, shut the fuck up mm-hmm. and, Otherwise, we'll throw you out, mm-hmm. which to me was incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, he asked me to make a mixtape for the PA there, which was cool. And then it was one of the regulars' birthday, and he is like, oh, it's Susan's birthday. We should do a song together, like him, me, and John Bryan. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sure, man. Like, that's terrifying. But uh, – <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, dude. So we we did like a really like kind of ambient cover of "All Is Full of Love" by Bjork. Um, and uh, yeah, so eventually I started working. Sorry, got off track there. Uh, no, don't started worry, working. You're not working off track at all. This is you're, you're exactly <laughs> on the right track, Bob. Okay. So I started working for John Bryan as like a personal assistant. Wow. Like you know, find finding gear and doing whatever. Um. So what did he and, do between the bats and when he starts producing all those records in the nineties? Was he involved in music in other ways? Cause I know he's in that old, like not the obviously New Zealand bats, but he had that other band, the bats. Yeah. The day. He did that. Um, and then when he was in Boston, you know, he was, uh, working at a studio there called, uh, Q division. Okay. And also he was playing with Amy Mann a bunch and produced, you know, her first two records. Mm-hmm. And I think would just do session stuff. And then when he came out to L.A., then it, everything really ramped up as far as session work and producing people and then also doing the, the residency. Yeah, because that Gustav Records that put out those Bats records is one of my favorite power pop punk labels. They did uh, like yeah, a, I, a run of incredible stuff. Man, yeah, I, I've never, I don't even have the Bats record, but uh, they they reissued that Pop Gun seven inch a couple of years ago because like the original is like a you know like close to a two hundred dollar record at this point, I guess. But yeah, like what a what a cool band, and like I had no idea that that what a what a weird neat event. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah did any did any bands form out of you guys kind of all meeting there and kind of like hanging out week after week with other people? Um, not that I know of, really. Um, it was just more kind of like, you know, before the shows, like talking about music mm-hmm. and, um, just hanging out. Um, and I met a lot of friends there, but not any like people that I really played music with. Yeah. Well, I would love to do this for another couple hours, Bob, but my wife <laughs> is texting me that I have to make dinner for my children. And so, okay. but can you come back and will you do a part two? Cause we haven't talked about anything really yet. Like we've talked about everything, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean like in yeah, your life, we absolutely. haven't gotten into wrestling or best coast or anything. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, so will you come back and do a part two at some point? Absolutely. Well, Bob, yeah, thank you. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. Oh, thank you, man. Anytime. Well, thank you, Bob, for coming on the show. And Bob, of course, will be back for a part two. As you can hear there, I had to go make dinner for the kids. So we had to cut a little bit short. But there's a lot more to get to with Bob. So Bob will definitely be back for a part two at some point in the future. And now I am also joined by Camden. Camden, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Okay, buddy. Uh, so Camden is joining me now to help me get through some corrections that I, I didn't get to at the top of the show. Uh, the mentors, we talked about the mentors in that episode. The mentors, Cam, they're, they're cool, but they're not cool, cool. You know, like they, they, they were they were some pretty shitty people um, by many accounts or one member in particular was, was pretty brutal by many accounts. So, yeah, so I just wanted to clarify mentors, cool, but certainly not cool. Uh, also, uh, is the band Struggle that we're trying to think of in the interview, the Ebullition band? I think it's Struggle. And also, you hear some screaming in the background at some point. It was not Camden. It was Rudy, the dog. So don't worry. Rudy's okay. He just 
gets very excited when anyone comes to the door. It's most people that own dogs know. But I just want to let everyone know that it wasn't a kid or something in the background that you heard. <sighs> well, that's it, Cam. Should we talk, tell them about what next week has in store? Next week on the show, it's a big one. It is a guest that I've wanted to talk to for a long time because this person's had a, a lot of mysteries swirling around them in my mind. The guest, of course, is the great Brad Logan. First thrust into the uh, spotlight of my young mind by that episode of South Park where Rancid does the song Brad Logan from, like, I think it's from the first season. So that it's a, it's a while ago that, you know. I'm not as much of a fan as I was back then of the series. Uh, but anyway, it, it, it is an incredible conversation with someone who has had a multitude of lives in punk rock and is one of the sweetest people I've gotten to meet in this whole genre. So that is one for you next week. It's a long one, too. So don't... Whoa. Okay. Well, I apparently I'm boring Camden right now. So... Uh, that is it for this week. Uh, go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do it. You can do it, Cam. Anyone can do this stuff. Anyone can do this stuff. And uh, I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Oh, check out Footnotes. Also, turn out a punk Footnotes. It's the podcast where we get really nerdy. All right. See you next week.